Hey, MJ Cast listeners, guess what? It's me, Jackie Jackson. I just want to congratulate the team on their 150th podcast. That's a lot of podcasts. Congratulations. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to episode 150 of the MJ Cast, part one of a two-part series. What a moment for us. After seven years, we've made it to the big 150. Elise, Charlie Carter, Charles Thompson, myself and the whole team would like to thank our listeners from the bottom of our hearts. Without our listeners and your continued engagement, the MJ Cast just wouldn't be possible. We cherish the community we've built and all for honouring the legacy of the King of Pop. As promised on our Reflections on John Barnes Roundtable, we've got an incredible guest here with us to mark the occasion. We're honoured to be joined by Matt Forger, legendary studio engineer who recorded so many classic Michael Jackson songs for albums like Thriller, Bad, Dangerous, History, and Blood on the Dance Floor, as well as countless other tracks. Matt is a significant collaborator not just because his hard work is evident on so many of these songs, but because he was working with Michael Jackson during his creative and commercial peak. It's very fitting that in 2022, during the 40th anniversary of Thriller, the 35th anniversary of Bad, and the 25th anniversary of Blood on the Dance Floor, three albums Matt was involved with, we're all here together. Matt worked closely in the studio with other key collaborators also, like John Barnes and Brad Buxer, helping to bring many of Michael's self-penned masterpieces to life. But what's so fascinating about Matt is how he worked with Michael during a period of time in the 80s and 90s when technology was rapidly evolving and changing. Michael surrounded himself with innovators and pushed his creative team to their limits. Making Michael's musical vision a reality required them to push technological boundaries further than they'd ever been pushed before. Michael's creativity and Matt's technical wizardry intersected in such a way that resulted in some of the best music in history. Today, we're going to hear the stories behind the songs. Matt, you're a guest we've wanted to record a special with ever since episode one, and we've finally got you. Welcome to the MJ cast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, we're, we're really excited. It's it, This has just been a, a dream come true. I've got to say, um, <laughs> at the outset, I've got to warn both of you guys, I do have COVID right now, but uh, I'm feeling okay. I think there might be enough distance between us here to be all safe. So, I'm confident that's uh, no concern of mine at this point, and I certainly <laughs> hope that you uh, do feel better. Thanks. I'm actually feeling it's kind of weird. Like everybody else I, I know that has had COVID has talked about it being pretty, pretty full on. But I, I tested positive a few days ago and knock on wood that I keep feeling okay because I think I might be one of the lucky asymptomatic people. That would be wonderful. It would be wonderful if we all could be asymptomatic uh, from COVID. Uh, 
Well, here we are. This is a huge moment. You know, we've got the 40th anniversary of Thriller this year, also the 25th anniversary of Blood on the Dance Floor, which the Michael Jackson estate hasn't talked too much about that one, but they've been putting, you know, their quote unquote energies into Thriller 40. I'm so excited, Matt, to talk to you because obviously you you were involved in both of those projects and many more. Yes. Well, I uh, got to hang out in the studio quite a bit with uh, everyone all of the various uh, entities over the years, all, all of the different personnel. Super, super cool. And where are you calling in from today? Uh, I'm in Los Angeles, California. Great. And over in Studio London, we've got Charlie Thompson as well. So Charlie, welcome back to the MJ cast. I don't know how many episodes you've been on now, quite a number, but I'm glad you can be here for 150. Yeah, I'm not counting. I don't know, but uh, it's been a lot. But yeah, thank you for having me on. It's a privilege to be on number 150. 150. I think you were on episode two as well, as far back as that. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I don't remember anything about it, but I remember that I was on it. I remember being really nervous to talk to you. Q and I were both very nervous, actually, but... (laughs) (laughs) How silly. Here we are. So... Matt, what we like to do at the MJ cast is is really go back in time to the origins of somebody's career and how they got into the industry. Could you talk to us about your early life and your inspirations around the music business? Oh, gosh. Yes. My lead in to uh, the music industry was very convoluted. Naturally, when I was young, I loved, I enjoyed music. Uh, my mom played uh, piano in the house when you're in an environment where a family member is a musician especially a parent you kind of are conditioned to hearing something other than it being a recording or something off of radio or television when i was uh old enough and at a time when the beatles were enormously popular i took guitar lessons practice as hard as I might on guitar, I never became as proficient as uh, my friends were. So uh, I went into the area of uh, hi-fis and stereos and record collections and all the, the technical side of the equipment that led to other technical explorations. When I entered college, I thought I would go into a mechanical engineering because I loved all things mechanical or electrical or I love to design and build things. I had a great imagination. I found out exactly how boring mechanical engineering was. <laughs> so after a year of that, I uh, converted, uh, I did a 180 degree flip and uh, I decided I wanted a fine arts degree. Uh, And I had never taken a music or an art class in high school, so I had to play catch-up and uh, build a portfolio so that I could apply to an art school. Much in the same way, if you are studying at a music school, you need to audition. You need uh, your portfolio to submit to get into uh, an art school. I got in, and I was doing this really at the time, kind of avant-garde technical thing, I was using light as my medium, colored light. So a lot of uh, what I was designing and building was uh, sculptural, but quite a bit of it was was 
programmed. So uh, they were these things that were either creating environments or they were things I constructed. And uh, from that, a friend, he came and saw my lights and said, hey, you know, would you want to bring along some of this equipment? Because our band could use some lighting. And I had uh, all kinds of equipment that just happened to be suited for that purpose. The first night that I brought in all kinds of lighting gear and uh, was setting up, he mentioned to me, by the way, could you keep your eye on this piece of equipment over here? I said, sure, what is it? He goes, this is a mixer. And I said, yeah, what does it do? He said, this balances the different microphones because the band had four people who sang as well as on a couple of the instruments they had microphones. And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. The evening went off fine. They loved the fact that my lighting enhanced the uh, performance. And to me, because I was such a hi-fi avid fan of uh, all kinds of electronic equipment, running this control board was easy and it was fun. And at the end of the night, I got paid $20. <laughs> uh, this was my first year after I had graduated from high school. So that was my actual first time I were, I, you could say I honestly worked professionally. I then delved deeply into my pursuit in college of fine arts. After I graduated and I got my degree in fine arts, I said, okay, now I can pursue music. Because all the time I was doing art, I was deep into the creative process. But I didn't want to be a starving artist. I really wanted I really wanted to do something with music. I had been mixing live sound on and off. And I used to go to concerts as bands were touring and regionally would come through the area. I'd have my eye on all the equipment. And I'd say, wow, I, I wish I had this equipment to mix the live sound with the bands I was working with. But there wasn't any way that I could afford that quality of equipment, speakers and uh, speaker arrays and uh, mixing boards. So uh, what I did was I would go to the music store and I would uh, send away to the company and I would get the literature and the specifications. And I would go to the music store and see how this equipment was built. And I would go home and reverse engineer it and then design my own equipment and build it. And that way I developed, I had a, a sound company, a sound reinforcement company. I had just a fantastic uh, PA system in terms of the, the speaker uh, systems. I, uh, it, it was all custom designed and built and I studied Lo and behold, all of that knowledge that I didn't think I was going to use when I was studying mechanical engineering, now all of a sudden started to pay off. I just got really good at mixing live sound, and it taught me so much. Uh, much of what happened was I was self-taught, and uh, I got to be what they refer to as a big fish in a small pond. I got really good regionally. And I didn't want to do live mixing any longer because every venue is just another bad sounding room. Mm -hmm. 
with the equipment I would have, I would use graphic uh, equalizers, which are equalizers that can break the the sound into very narrow bands so that you can compensate for the acoustics of the room that the band is performing in. So that was uh, what I did. I was striving to always get the best possible sound. And I said, no, what I want to do is I want to get into an actual recording studio where you are in a room that is designed for music recording so that the acoustics will enhance the sound quality. Because I grew up on the East Coast of the United States, I visited New York City, and uh, that was not quite to my liking. I grew up in upstate New York, Syracuse, New York. And when I traveled to Los Angeles and visited uh, a friend working in a studio here, I said I could see myself living in Los Angeles. A big factor was the fact that I wouldn't have to deal with severe winter weather which the uh, portions of the United States have, especially the region that I was from. I used to call it the land of ice and snow because we used to have a what they called lake effect off of the Great Lakes, which meant a tremendous amount of snowfall, frigidly cold winters. So I uh, made my way to Los Angeles. I got myself a, an entry-level position at a recording studio as a tech trainee at Westlake Audio because I wanted to learn everything from the bottom up. I was familiar with equipment and equipment basic design and operation, but live is a different application of the equipment than a recording studio. So I got a great background in the equipment that you find in a recording studio and how it's more specialized than in a different respect to what you do for live uh, sound reinforcement. Even though I was working as a technician in a recording studio, I, I wanted to be actually in the control room. I wanted to be working on engineering recordings in, in mixing. So hmm. uh, that's when I made my transition. And I uh, hooked up with uh, Quincy Jones and his engineer, Bruce Wedeen and uh, Rod Temperton. I got to become part of what Quincy referred to as his A-team, and did, I did a series of albums, half a dozen albums that uh, Quincy produced, I worked on. You mentioned the Beatles earlier. Yes. Was Quincy's stuff the kind of stuff that you were into as a fan, or what was it that inspired you as you got into creative life? What artists inspired you and made you want to go on this journey in the first place? Well, when I would listen to albums. Uh, there were just some remarkable sounding albums in that era, in the, uh, the 70s. And there were a couple bands, one of them was Van Halen, that when I heard that record, those records that they did, I said, these guys sound like they're having fun recording these things. I go, that's what I want to do. Of course, their producer was Ted Templeton and, uh, the engineer was Don Landy. They had also done the Doobie Brothers. Their albums were great sounding albums. And it wasn't just that these were great sounding albums. These were albums that you got an emotional feeling from. That's what made albums successful was, you know, you felt something when you listened to the music. But at the same time, when you were listening to a just a gorgeous 
sounding sonic image when, when you were when you were listening to the sound come out of your speakers and I was a huge fanatic with speakers I was designing my own speaker systems uh, to the point where I was actually building studio monitors and selling them to my friends I was just such a fanatic in terms of being a perfectionist about quality I just wanted to pursue it I remember before I left I said I do not know what my, the future holds in store for me but I know I have to leave the comfort of the city that I grew up in and all my friends and uh, I need to go to where the music is being made and uh, that's Los Angeles. And was Michael Jackson or were the Jackson family part of that scene that you were into? Were they part of your musical influences or was Michael as an artist not somebody you paid particular attention to until you worked with him? I can't say that I ever bought any Jackson 5 albums because of the slightly generational difference or age difference. The Jackson 5 appealed to my younger members, my, my sisters, my younger sisters in, in the family. By that time, I had moved on into... Uh, rock that was a little bit more sophisticated or complicated, uh, progressive rock, you know, a lot of rock that was considered pop. But of course, you could not miss hearing either Michael or the Jackson 5. All of those recordings were everywhere on radio because uh, when you come from a smaller market, you don't have the... Uh, specialization in terms of a radio station that only would play a narrow spectrum of, of musical styles. Pop radio would play everything of a popular nature. Rock, R&B, what you would consider classic uh, pop, traditional pop. So I really grew up hearing a wide spectrum of music. And the Jackson 5 were definitely in there. You couldn't miss hearing them. And yes, I did at one point see the movie that uh, Michael sang uh, a song to the rat, Ben. <laughs> I remember seeing that movie. And he was just a presence that was always there. I knew who he was in the Jackson 5, and the hit records they had were just undeniable, as was all of the music that came out of Motown. I grew up with all of that music. It was a tremendous influence. What an exciting time. Could you tell us about how you first came to work with Michael Jackson? Well, as I mentioned, I had worked with Quincy and Bruce and Rod on uh, several albums. After we had done a number of albums together as a team, we were doing the Donna Summer album and uh, Quincy said, well, you know, our next album is going to be Michael's next, going to be whatever Michael's next album is going to be. We're going to be doing that record following Donna Summers. Bruce would say, oh, Matt, you're going to love working with Michael. And I said, great. I look forward to it. Not knowing Michael at that time, but once we got into working on the album, which was Thriller, we became kind of friends, but, you know, it was a very professional relationship at that level. 
it wasn't until later that uh, we really developed a, a much closer uh, relationship, a much closer friendship. We're jumping into the thriller era here. I mean, this is the biggest selling album of all time. Looking back on that, how does it feel for you now knowing you were a part of literally the biggest selling album of all time? Staggering. Uh, lots of times I don't, I, I, I don't think about it because it's potentially so overwhelming. Hmm. Depending on how people interpret philosophy and uh, consciousness and a lot of things that happen in, in life, what is it that leads you, what is it that drives you to pursue something in your life? Now, I loved music. That's why I gave up the other things that, that I had uh, interest in to focus specifically on, on music to the point where I packed up all my belongings in a car and drove to the other side of the country. The fact that a guy from a medium-sized city, a smaller-sized city, not, not a major city in the, in the country, growing up in high school, I was just like an average student. Uh, when I was studying art, I loved my studies of the creative field, and I devoted myself completely to it, which is what I then transferred uh, to wanting to learn everything that I could about recording music, production, working in a studio, the entire spectrum of what was involved. I wanted to know it and understand it. I have to reflect on a story here. And I must have been 10 or 12 years old when it became apparent to me, because in that era, most of the music was consumed by uh, listening to the radio or a record collection, or you know, if you had a music collection. It wasn't uh, on-demand streaming. So you would have to wait, and the songs would be played because they would be chosen by the DJ. And after you would hear four or five songs, then this one song would come on the radio that all of a sudden would make you want to sing along on the hook or move your body, or it just, like, infected you. It just uh, made you feel something that the other songs didn't. There was a, a mantra that my father kind of bestowed on me unknowingly, and that was whenever I was young and I was designing and wanting and attempting to build something, which I was very creative and I just loved creating stuff or taking things apart and fixing stuff. And he questioned it when I would go to my dad, he'd always look at me and say, well, figure it out. And I heard that so many times in my young life that was one of the things that when I wanted a great sounding sound reinforcement system to mix live music with for the bands I was working with, I had to figure out how do I get a great sounding system because I don't have the money to afford buying this great equipment. I had to design and build my own. So that was one of those... I had to figure out that process. I had to figure out uh, going into my mind and pulling out all my knowledge that I had acquired at that time in terms of construction and design and construction technique and acoustics 
and how these things operate, the physics of how sound propagates. So I always wanted to know this other question, and that was, what is that thing that separates a good song from a great song? Because the difference was apparent. Anyone that's been to a uh, concert or to a club, you know how there's audience reaction when that magical song starts being played. If it's a dance club, the dance floor all of a sudden is packed. If it's a, a live show, everybody's singing along, everybody's swaying. If it's some other venue, if you're in a restaurant or a bar and you're just uh, enjoying uh, an evening, you'll hear people joining in and singing along with the hook of a song that's a really popular song. So in my mind, I said, what is this quality? I have to find out what this is. I have to figure this out, which is what my pursuit was when I moved to Los Angeles. I wanted to figure out these things. I wanted to be in the environment because if I wasn't in the recording studio, then I would never find out. But to me, I had to get in the studio and work with these accomplished professionals so I could figure out, oh, this is how the great records are made. Then I would uh, be satisfying that curiosity. You mentioned that Bruce said to you, you're going to love working with Michael. In what way did Michael differ from other artists when you got into those sessions for Thriller? What did you observe about the way that Michael worked, which was different than the way that other artists worked that you'd been in the studio with before? The thing that most dramatically struck me was his degree of professionalism and his dedication to the music. He had this attitude. Michael would laugh, you know, him and Quincy would make jokes. Michael could laugh about himself and be lighthearted. But when it came to the music, he was absolutely dead serious. He was totally focused on the music to the smallest detail. And he knew it. He knew exactly what something should be, how something should sound, how the interplay between the, the instruments or the, the percussion elements or, or something vocally. He knew exactly how it should sound. And especially on the songs that he wrote, exactly what the quality should be of the end product. The obvious experience that he had from working in the studio for so long with so many professionals. I mean, he understood the process as good as anyone I had ever seen because he knew exactly what to do to get the sound that he wanted. So when he heard it on playback, he knew what he was going to get. Well, that almost sounds like a producer type role. So how did Michael and Quincy work together in that way? What was the interplay between them? Well, on the songs that Michael wrote, Michael knew what the sound should be, what the execution, how that should come into reality. There was a quality about Quincy because I had worked with him at this point on enough album projects to know that Quincy was really sensitive to 
what it was the artist was trying to communicate. He always wanted to pull that thing out of an artist that elevated them, that elevated their performance, or the sound of the record, the emotional quality. And when Quincy would hear, for example, a demo of a song, regardless of what the project was or who the artist was, if there was some quality that drew him to how the demo sounded and felt, very often he would want that same person or people who had recorded the demo to be in the studio to record the track. There's just different things about the way different musicians subtly, you know, it's part of themselves that they put into the performance. He always wanted Michael's music to come out the way Michael envisioned it. And on the other songs that we worked with, it was the same uh, degree of detail. For example, the songs that Rod Temperton wrote. He was always, Rod, how should this be? And Rod would know very specifically. He was very encouraging of that creative process. I think the term I can use is for uh, the recording of the song to the finished product to fully realize its total potential. And when something is fully realized in terms of the artist's vision of what the song could be, that's where you want the music to be taken. You were talking earlier about Michael how he would have an idea of exactly how everything should sound right down to the smallest detail. So could you give an example from the Thriller sessions of a particular song, the way that Michael, anything that would illustrate that kind of mentality that you're describing? Well, uh, one of the first songs that Michael sang the complete vocals to was Billie Jean. I had heard Michael sing uh, many of the songs just guide vocals and lead vocals up to that point. When it came time for Michael to sing the background vocals, because it's his own voice singing all of the harmonies in the backing vocals, he doubled all of the vocal harmonies, the different harmony notes. And by doubling, I mean he would sing it a first time, and then he would sing it a second time. And the first time he would perform it, that performance would be panned to the left side, come out, of the, come out of the left speaker. When he sang the double to it, when he was singing the same thing, the second time it would come out of the speaker on the right side. Now the doubling just gives that extra thickness and texture quality to the sound. And if you have a three-part harmony, then Michael would be singing a total of six tracks to execute all of the backgrounds on a three-part harmony song. When Michael was singing all of the background parts, he was making these noises in between the phrases that he was singing. He was doing the hiccups, he was doing the tee-hee, he was doing the, the ad-libs things. And because this was my first experience, I turned to Bruce, I said, Bruce, um, do any of these things get cleaned up later? And I, of course, I was in the room with Bruce. Michael couldn't hear me. And uh, Bruce turned to me and said, oh, no, no, that's, that's exactly what Michael is looking for. 
the amazing thing about it was Michael went into the session knowing when he was singing the basic track of the harmony, he was coming out of the left speaker, and he when he was singing the double to the harmony, he was on the right one. So he knew going in, and I learned this with him much later when I started recording him, he knew exactly where all of the placement of every single sound that he made vocally would be coming out in terms of the landscape of the stereo image in the picture. He had it all planned out. He had it all mapped out in advance. He knew exactly where every single hiccup, whatever vocalization that he did, he knew how that would play in a stereo field. So it was like, in his mind, he was able to envision how, how the tracks were going to sound when they were mixed even before he performed them. So for me, that was like not surprising, but it showed the detail to which he understood not the recording process from a technical standpoint, but he understood the recording process from an artistic execution to achieve what it was he wanted to happen in the song when it was finished. Would you be able to walk us through the process of a song right from like its earliest conception to its completion? What Maybe let's choose a song and let's tell its story or its journey. How did a song typically start? What did you then get involved in, in in terms of working on it? And how did it get through all the way to completion? Were you involved at all in any of the demo creation for Thriller, for Michael's own songs that he wrote? No, I wasn't. He had a very basic demo studio at uh, Havenhurst. It was a 16-track tape machine, and he had a board, a mixing board console, a rather what we would probably currently say was was like a semi-pro quality. It wasn't a a full-on professional setup. It was reasonably good quality. I mean, they could do very good demos, but it didn't have all the bells and the whistles that uh, top-of-the-line professional gear would have. Brent Averill was the recording engineer who recorded uh, most of the uh, demos for the Thriller album, and it's very unfortunate that he is no longer with us because I know he would have some interesting stories. Typically, what would happen is uh, if Michael came in with a demo for a song like Billie Jean, he would have played the song to Quincy. Quincy would have uh, said, yeah, that's definitely something that we're going to use. And then at Westlake, the first thing Quincy would do is he would do what he called doing Polaroids. Polaroids were snapshots or quick recordings representing what the song would be. This would be kind of like a test recording to make sure the tempo was correct, the key of the song was correct, uh, how Michael's voice was going to sit in the track against the instrumentation from a production standpoint, a producer's uh, viewpoint. Then after that Polaroid, We did a number of Polaroids on a number of songs. Slowly, certain songs fell away. They just got left behind as newer songs 
came into the picture that were better songs. It wasn't like one day there was a, we're going to get rid of these. It was more like, oh, here's a new song. Let's, let's see how this one's going to sound and work in the context of, of what the album is going to become. And we would go through the process. Basically, I want to say pretty much all of the songs went through that kind of a process. A demo would be brought in, and typically it would have been something, whoever the songwriter was, they would be submitting a cassette. So we would listen to a cassette of the demo. From there, we would do this rough sketch Polaroid recording to make sure that all of the factors were correct. Sometimes those recordings would be further developed. Sometimes there'd be a slight adjustment. And then when the serious recording was happening, it was full bore attention to every detail, every quality of uh, sound. Sometimes you use, you use an instrument uh, in a demo that later you say, you know, I really envisioned this being uh, something a little bit more richer or thicker or more lush in quality uh, so you know things would get substituted or enhanced in that fashion would you be able to describe for our listeners what your particular role was the liner notes list you as the technical engineer so what was your role in the recording process and this might be a good chance to talk about some of that technical expertise around the equipment well uh the role of being the technical engineer was you might say everything of a technical nature was my responsibility. Here is where I have to dive into the technical world of how things were recorded, working with Bruce and Quincy. Bruce had, prior to this, adopted a system where he would use multiple 24-track tapes. A typical pop record, rock record, would be recorded on a single real. It would have 24 tracks, which meant you could have 24 separate distinct uh, elements recorded so that when you mixed all of them, you could control those elements separately in equalization, in effect, in volume. That was the blending or the mixing. But because Quincy came from a different place in terms of his arranging in his producing ability. His studies of composition and arrangement with uh, Madame uh, Nadia Boulanger in Paris for, I think, six years. He basically understood everything from classical music, film scoring, all the way to bebop, jazz, pop. I mean, he knew the whole spectrum, the palette he had to choose from in creating the recordings. And one of the things he liked to do was to have multiple layers of sound. Quincy would call them textures or colors or, you know, he would build up these very rich sounding character things. Sometimes you would, in a uh, classical situation, you know, if you have an oboe and a cello play the same line, you get a combination of sound that creates a character. Or you have a trumpet and a flute 
or a piccolo play the line. You get the combination of these two separate instruments and they create a particular texture. That's what Quincy was doing, except we were using synthesizers, a standard acoustic piano, electric piano, electric guitar, electric bass. Uh, we were using pop instruments, but with that same type of, we're going to combine this sound with that sound, and maybe a synthesizer sound that you would hear in a song would actually be a combination of several different synthesizers, each one having a slightly different character, but it would have this very rich character with a lot of depth. And in order to do that, you needed a lot of separate tracks. So we would have a master tape, which was the rhythm section, which would be drums, bass, guitar, piano. This master recording would be on a single 24 track. And then through a process called SEMPTY synchronization, you could have a separate uh, 24 track machine. We would then combine all of this tracking information in the rhythm section down to just a few tracks on yet another 24 track tape. And they worked as guide tracks so that you could hear the entire song that had been recorded to that point. But then you had many empty tracks. And then when you have many of these tapes, which are formatted the same way, let's say you have six of these tapes, then you can dedicate one track to synthesizers. You can dedicate one track to backing vocals, dedicate one tape to uh, horns and to brass and dedicate another one to some other element. And then all of these separate elements that are recorded all on these individual tapes, all of these now need to be what's called pre-mixed or mixed down so that you have a manageable number of elements on your mixing console when it comes time to do the final mix. But all of these tapes have to be able to be synchronized to each other flawlessly. I mean to within a frame accuracy. A frame is 33 milliseconds, uh, so, so three-tenths of a second. To, to, to a very, very fine degree, you need this accuracy of these multiple machines all running together. Exponentially, the complexity grows with the number of audio components and the number of tapes that are required to create this. My job was to be in control of all of that and make sure all this kind of stuff worked correctly. In uh, a computer, you can do, you can do a copy-paste you know, with a click of a mouse. Back then, I was manipulating equipment that was achieving the same thing, but I had to do it with a whole different set of technology. Kind of like, you know, when you, when you look at, uh, if you ever watch the old programs about the, uh, when you're launching, you know, the, the early space missions, and there'd be a huge control room with 50 people at different uh, consoles, all manipulating different uh, functions of what the rocket was doing and the telemetry and, the, you know, all the different systems. It was kind of like, that same thing. There's got to be one guy that's in charge of 
directing and coordinating and making sure that all of that stuff works on demand every time and that it's repeatable. And then when there's a, a special thing that needs to happen, there were these special cases where I had to manipulate the technology to create something that wasn't recorded musically in the arrangement the way that Quincy wanted it to be in the final thing. Or Michael. Michael might have the same feeling. So basically, I was in charge of everything technical, and, and it was a, a huge responsibility. On the song Thriller, I think we used uh, 12 24-track tapes of elements to create the entire song, which is why, to that point in time, uh, when you compared the sound quality and the richness and the fullness and the depth of sound quality, that the quality, just sonically, of everything that you heard when you listened to Thriller, it was like this was something you hadn't heard before. That was the big push in terms of uh, we were stretching the envelope to create a sonic thing that was just beyond what your typical pop song embodied. Now, at some point, the project started to change. So there had been a period where certain songs were being worked on, like Carousel and Hot Street, and then they started to be phased out and replaced by the songs that ended up on the final album. Was that a part of that process? Can you talk us through the progress of Thriller from inception to completion and how that mission drove the way that songs were being selected and moved in and out of the project? Well, we started with a uh, large number of songs from outside writers and from Rod. Michael contributed Billie Jean and uh, Starting Something. The first month or so, we had an album that was very different from what the final album was. And it was simply because as we worked and Michael's songs came into the mix, all of a sudden those songs, uh, some of those that you were talking about, like Carousel, Got the Hots, uh, Starlight is a good example of that. The original group of songs sounded much more like, I want to say, uh, the album was like uh, Son of Off the Wall. They were a little bit lighter. They were a little bit more pop. They weren't like the nature of things that Michael started to bring into the studio with the attitude. That's when everybody felt like this album is developing its own life. It's creating itself in terms of the attitude that the music is projecting. And a great example of that is, is Billie Jean in, in Starting Something. Those songs were not light, fluffy pop songs. Those songs were not like songs that Michael had previously recorded. They were displays of his uh, advancing skill in songwriting and his production ideas. As these songs that had more edge and had more energy came on the scene, then it was easy to see that some of these other lighter pop songs weren't, weren't in keeping with the, 
direction that the album was taking. Were there any particular songs that you remember were difficult to let go from the track list? I mean, we just received Thrill of 40. Um, It's just been released and we're hearing songs for the first time, like Who Do You Know and What a Lovely Way to Go. And the public are just hearing these songs for the first time. Can, Can you recall any particular song that the team were just struggling to let go for that track list? No, no. In fact, those two songs which you just mentioned, in effect, uh, were really not in contention for Thriller. They were from a slightly earlier era prior to Thriller. They were something from between the off the wall and, and, and the Thriller thing. Those two were never in contention to be on Thriller. I'm curious to know when songs like Billie Jean and Wanna Be Starting Something were coming into the studio, what was your reaction to them the first time that you heard them? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, the first time I heard them, obviously I heard the, the original demos. That's what we originally listened to. And the first thing that impressed me was the energy level. They were edgy in a way that uh, not a lot of uh, pop music was at that point in time. I mean, there were some people doing some edgy things, uh, of course. For Michael, this was stuff that had a very, very strong personality, a very strong musical personality that at the same time was, was unique. No one had ever, at that point, had a pop song with the subject matter or the theme of Billie Jean before. That was kind of like, that was stretching the uh, subject matter of what a pop song would be about. Starting something, I mean, there was just an energy from that song that was just, you know, unstoppable. If you didn't feel that the rhythmic drive in that song, it it was just so intense. And as we worked on the songs and developed them, they only became more intense. And the edge just picked up that personality that demanded your attention. It wasn't, you know, casual background listening music by any means. There is a, a an often told story that Quincy was not a fan of Billie Jean. What do you remember about Quincy's initial feelings towards Billie Jean and whether they changed? Well, I think what Quincy did was uh, he was questioning Michael. Part of the conversation was mm, uh, the subject matter, number one. Number two was the title, Billie Jean. At that time, there was a very famous sports figure, Billie Jean King. Billie Jean was synonymous with her. There was a brief period in time uh, when... I think what Quincy was doing was uh, Quincy was actually testing Michael's commitment to the track. But the track just grew to a point where it was so strong. Quincy was like, you're absolutely right, Michael. Uh, this this track is, is, is killer. I mean, this track is undeniable. But sometimes that's the role of a producer. You don't want to surround yourself in business or in a lot of endeavors, sometimes even the creative arts. Uh, with a lot of yes people that just kind of blow smoke. You want people that keep you on your toes, keep the creative thing really immediate. 
Michael's commitment to the song was, was undeniable. It never wavered. Quincy was on board, but it didn't take long. It really didn't take long at all. You were speaking earlier about how part of your mission was this quest to find out what makes an amazing song, what makes one of those songs that exhilarates people. Obviously, with hindsight, everybody knows now that Thriller is the biggest selling album in history. But while you were making it, did you have the sense that you were making something that was different, something that was going to be game-changing? Well, I have to separate those two things. We knew what we were doing was special. There was no denying the songs, the intensity of the songs, the, the vibe, the emotional component. There was like no doubt this was great stuff. There was a day that I was standing at that place in the studio where I had uh, the control equipment for what I was doing. Bruce was doing something at the mixing console, and Quincy kind of wandered over to me, and he said, Matt, what do you think? Do you think uh, this album, uh, how do you think this album is going to do? At that point in time, the recording industry was in, shall we say, a slump. It wasn't uh, as popular in terms of the numbers of albums sold and the amount of money the record labels were making as it had been a few years uh, earlier. And I said, well, I think the album's going to do really well. I said, you know, this album's going to do at least as well as Off the Wall. Off the Wall at that point it sold six million. For an album to sell six million copies was a, a considerable accomplishment. So I knew it was good, but nobody in the room knew what would happen when it was released, because this is the thing about the creative process, especially in music. You do the very best that you can, and when it is released to the public, you find out whether or not the public, how they react to it. Is it something that the public loves, that they embrace? Or, you know, is it maybe something that's good, that's kind of lukewarm, or do they not care for it? You really never know. And every single recording artist, I think, at the core knows that that's the name of the game. However, by the same token, every time you go into the studio, your intention is always, I have to do the best that I can. I have to make the best record that I can. Because if you're just going in the recording studio, as they say, phoning it in and just, you know, not caring and, and just, oh, that's good enough. It doesn't matter. If you have that kind of attitude, uh, then you probably don't belong in the studio making records, especially if you have a label that is investing a very large amount of money in the cost of the recording and the production. So none of us in the room had any clue as to what the trajectory was going to be when it came out in the world. But we all knew we were doing the very best we could. And when people ask me that question, I always will answer saying, no, no one in the room had any inkling that it was going to become what it became. But by the same token, I have never worked on a project 
that the attitude in the room and the vibe was what it was with Thriller. So I say, it never surprised me that Thriller did what it did, because the way the team worked together, creatively, technically, musically, arrangement-wise, production-wise, it was a moment in time that was, it was like there was one singular communal mind that was creatively working on this project. I mean, the teamwork was beyond anything I'd ever experienced before or since. We all were on this mental wavelength of what we had to do, how we had to do it, the degree of excellence that we had to shoot for. Total, total commitment. The story of Thriller, the end of the process of recording it, and then the whole listening session, and then its eventual release, the story, I guess, has been told so many times now about how there was a listening session and that that initial mix sounded nowhere near what the team wanted. Would you be able to walk us through, like, how did the record end up getting to a point where it didn't sound good, technically? What was the impact of that on you personally? The way that unfolded, you have to look back at how the production work progressed, uh, how the recording schedule unfolded. The fact that right in the middle of recording this album project, Quincy and Steven Spielberg say, hey, we've got a great idea. Let's have Michael record a narrative album called the E.T. Storybook Album. And at that time, uh, the movie E.T. was the biggest thing that had ever happened. It was a completely logical thing. But all of a sudden, we had two to three weeks of time taken out of our schedule that would have been filled with working on Thriller. So we got sidetracked. You know, everybody jumped on the E.T. Storybook uh, project full bore. It had to be up to that level of quality that was expected. So we finished that. And then when we got back to working with Thriller, it was like, wow, there's these other new songs now that are on the scene. And these new songs are going to need a whole bunch of work. About that time, the songs Beat It had come in in the middle of the project. Rod had to come up with yet another song, which was Lady in My Life. There was uh, Quincy wanting to find something that was just a totally unique kind of approach, uh, but not knowing what that was until he heard it. And when he heard Quite By Accident, Steve Picaro's demo of human nature, it was like the spark went off and the light bulb went off. And he said, that song has to be on this album. And then there was the feeling that Quincy wanted a uh, party song, PYT. So the second half of the album was really, really demanding in terms of a recording schedule. Uh, we were working extremely long hours. Uh, we had started in Westlake Studio A, then across the hall from Studio A was Studio B. So then Studio B went online. I worked in Studio B for a while. That wasn't enough. Then Umberto Gatica came on and he engineered and 
worked full-time in Studio B, and Bruce and Quincy were full-time in Studio A, and their schedules were staggered, so I was between those two studios, and I was coordinating everything that needed to happen with this uh, multi-track recording system of, of multiplexing, as, as Bruce called it, all of these numbers of 24-track tapes in, in the process. And because you have this large number of tapes, it's a time-consuming process when it comes time to recombine all the tracks down and prepare for mixing. And we were working extremely long hours. We were doing anywhere from 16, 18 to 20 hour days uh, for the last month. Quite honestly, everyone was fatigued. Everyone was tired. Uh, everyone was trying to make the commitment of the deadline and all of the different components that needed to be recorded. And it just got to the point where the commitment of making the deadline was so important to the record label that everybody was not uh, as sharp and as clear-headed and as well-rested as they should have been. It was just fatigue from working so hard to meet this deadline. We met the deadline. But it's one of those things where you can say you sacrificing quality for meeting a time constraint. The pressure from the record label was tremendous for it to be done on time. Consequently, a lot of things just kind of, uh, we didn't get the time to stand back and evaluate and, and make sure every detail was correct. Uh, because when you mix an album, that is probably the most critical stage of the entire process. Obviously, being fatigued is not the physical condition you want to be in. That's what happened. A lot of things just slipped through a lot of uh, the detail work. The songs ended up being very long. That was another issue. The amount of time that you physically could put on a vinyl album side. It's the laws of physics. It's a trade-off. You can have a lot of time or you can have a higher sound quality. And the sound quality, unfortunately, was sacrificed for the fact that the songs were overly long. There was no one thing. There was a combination of factors that all, all came together in a perfect storm of it just wasn't right. No one felt that uh, it was its full potential. We know what happened then in terms of, you know, the team going back to get it right and get it out and the rest is history. It, within a year, it became the biggest selling album of all time when the thrill of the video came out a year later. Of course, you know, it's just a monumental effort. Um, one quick question before we move on to the, the era's following thriller. I'd like to ask a little bit about Beat It. The Beat It demo that we have is very, very different, obviously, to the final version because it's sort of a cappella. There's a lot of vocal harmonies, just Michael doing those, and it sounds incredible. But the, the final version, obviously, is a like a, a rock <laughs> anthem. To your knowledge, was the vision for Beat It, was it always going to be a rock song, or did it start out differently and then evolve into that? Uh, no, it was always intended to be a rock song. Michael had a, uh, at his home studio, he had a 16-track machine. So he was limited in the number of elements 
or the numbers of tracks that he could assemble. Naturally, all of the layering of sound wasn't there. All of the guitar parts, you know, couldn't really be totally explored in the demo process, which is why when we got into actually recording Beat It in the studio, that was a difficult song in terms of it just demanded a lot of time and attention because it needed to be that, and everybody knew it needed to be that, but that's one of those delicate things that you got to make sure you're, you're right on the money. It can't be, oh, that's good enough. That's never going to cut it in the long run. It is, this has to be, the energy has to be totally 100% on target, which was the thing that uh, everybody labored for very, very, very hard. Steve Lukather was a very big part of working with Quincy to make sure that it had that thing. It had that, just that right amount of edge and attitude. But, uh, you know, some songs kind of, the process is easy on. Some of them it's much more difficult on. But I think uh, in this case, the difficulty of what the challenge was is what made Beat It such a great song, is everyone's effort. Great, great answer. Thank you so much. So after Thriller came out, how quickly did Michael jump back into the studio and were you you were still, I, I'd imagine, I mean, I know you were such an important part of Bad a little later down the track, but were you retained as a key part of the team, even in Michael's recording efforts directly after Thriller? It was a year later, as you mentioned, it was a year later that the Thriller video came out. I had worked with Bruce, I think, on most of the single releases because we would go in and um, sometimes we would be doing a remix just for the, not to remix the quality or the sound, but because uh, radio preferred to have something that wasn't too long. So sometimes we had to do specific radio versions that were just slightly shorter. When we went in to do the music for the Thriller video, we actually had to deconstruct the song Thriller and then reconstruct the song, because when you hear the song the way it plays in the Thriller video, all of the verses flow so that you have the story unfold in a certain fashion. It isn't until after you get through all of the verses that you then get into the chorus and then into the breakdown and then the dance section. So, you know, we completely restructured the song for that and that work was done i want to say in november december a year later so uh, i was still working at that point and then the next thing that came up for michael jackson i believe was uh, the victory album with uh, his brothers bruce and i worked on the tracks that were um, Michael's contribution to the Victory album. I worked on the uh, mixing the opening to the to the Victory concert to the show. There was a, a theatrical opening that I worked on and I mixed. Then I think the next thing following that was there were some song ideas 
I got the call to come in and just work with Michael on some song ideas that he had, which led to then Michael producing his sister, Rebe, in the song Centipede. There was also Captain EO. And then uh, after Captain EO, we started to work on what was to become the Bad Album. We're going to spend a lot of time on the on the Bad Album because I know that that's where your collaborative efforts with John Barnes at Havenhurst were just, I just love learning about that time period. That's one of my favorite time periods to learn about. Before we get there, so back to that victory era and sort of in between Thriller and Captain EO, I want to ask about, so the Victory album itself, how how cohesive was that whole thing? Because like you listen to the album and there's like a bit of the Jacksons without Michael and there's a bit of Michael without, you know, the brothers. And and so were you talking much with Michael at the time about the vision for the album? Was it, was the relationship between him and his family fractious at all? Or I think it could best be described as being strained. I think originally, because if you look at the pattern of how the Jacksons' albums had uh, gone before Thriller, those albums were very much team efforts, which Michael played a a very large part in. At the point where I, I think Michael was under the assumption, as much of us in the studio were, well, it's probably going to be something like what has happened before. But then, for whatever reason, it kind of broke apart. Instead of there being a big, huge team effort on the music as a total thing, it seemed that everyone broke apart and everyone kind of did their own thing. Everybody worked on their own music. I don't know the anything behind the scenes as to... What led to that, I can only imagine that was the group decision about, you know, maybe everybody wanted to stretch out a little bit and and do their own thing. And that was the reasoning behind it. As you know, there was a lot of things about the Victory Tour. When you look back and you read about it, there was just a, a lot of dynamics going on there. That was, uh, I know it was stressful for Michael at the time. I don't know any particulars. We didn't have real conversations about it, but I knew that it was a uh, change from what had gone before. Yeah, I suppose Thriller having reached the heights that it did, but Michael still being formally a part of the Jacksons, it cast a whole different dynamic on everything. <laughs> I can't imagine that would have been easy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to what degree I was not, uh, I think I worked with one of the brothers maybe maybe one day on one of the songs, but I wasn't involved with any of the other brothers. And it's just that maybe they considered me Michael's guy for whatever reason, but everybody did definitely kind of go for their own thing on that album. The songs that Michael did, I worked on with Bruce. Having to complete an album at the same time you're having to prep for a tour and rehearse and create all of the necessary staging elements and choreography and 
I mean, it's very demanding. So I know that was a very demanding time. I'm Michael, in terms of having free time or personal time or being involved in anything other than just getting through that process of getting the album completed, getting the tour together, launching the tour, getting the tour out on the road. I know that there's a victory to a documentary about to come out on a, a major US TV station. I don't know if it's CNN, but... And Howard Bloom tells a great story when we interviewed him. Uh, he was Michael's publicist at, the, publicist at the time around how there was a rehearsal in an airport hangar somewhere. Things were not going right. And Michael's there sitting on the stage just done and wanting to cancel the whole thing. <laughs> and, and I mean, thank God it did end up happening. Were you there for much of the Victory Tour preparation? I mean, obviously you put together the musical element that went as the intro to the show. Were you watching the show evolve and then also seeing it live did you get to see it live yourself as well i did get to see the victory tour uh when uh the jacksons played dodger stadium i never saw or was any part of the uh preparation other than just that introduction piece i'm trying to remember if there was anything that michael was doing on his own at that point in time, and I can't recall anything in particular, because if he would have, then I would have been engineering for Michael in that respect. But I think his energy was just focused on trying to get that tour, working out the kinks. I mean, it's probably going to be a fascinating documentary. I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot from watching that. What you just mentioned about they were in the airport hangar rehearsing, which would be kind of typical, they would either be in an airport hangar or they would be on a uh, movie soundstage so they could actually have a complete staging setup with the sound, the special effects, the lighting. Everyone has to learn their cues and you need a very large indoor space to do that. When things get overly complex, they become more difficult simply because you're coordinating many more people and many forms of technology that have to mesh seamlessly. There's a time period where you can really become frayed and frustrated when things don't seem to uh, be working as expected. After Thriller, Michael recorded songs like Scared of the Moon, We Are Here to Change the World, Chicago 1945, and a few other songs with Buzz Cohen that he kept off victory. Are you able to talk much at all about any of those pre-bad songs, maybe maybe Scared of the Moon? I would get a call, Michael wants you to show up at the studio, he's got a song idea. And I would show up and whoever would show up for musicians would show up and we would uh, record 24 track. We had done the piano vocal demo and Michael sang a lead vocal and he sang a harmony vocal as would always be the case, and would mix it down and give Michael a cassette. And Michael said something to the effect of, oh, yeah, we're going to do some more work on this. He said, so give me the, I need to take the 24-track tape with me, which was not typically done. But because he explained to me that something else was going to be done, and I think he might have mentioned, yeah, we're going to do strings on this. So I... I said, oh, okay. That was a point where that, that was a lesson that I learned there is you never give it anything to Michael that 
you don't have a copy of or <laughs> you haven't covered the inevitability of what happens if uh, this goes missing. And so he walked out and he left. I didn't think much of it. And I got a phone call a month or two later. And it was from an engineer at Evergreen Studios. And they were there with, I believe, Marty Page, who had an orchestra sitting in the studio. I mean, a full orchestra. And the engineer said, I'm working on this project called Scared of the Moon. I said, yes. And he said, where is the tape? Where's the master tape? I said, well, Michael has it. Well, the only thing Michael walked into the studio with was a cassette. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry, but I don't know what to tell you. Michael took it with him, and I don't know where it is. I have no idea where it could be, because Michael not only lived at Havenhurst, but there was also a condo somewhere that he would occasionally use in the San Fernando Valley. So I said, I have no idea where the tape could possibly be. The only thing I can say is you've got to lay that cassette onto the multitrack and work against that. He goes, but it's a cassette. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry. And I felt kind of bad now in, in you know, hindsight of the fact that I just let Michael walk out of the, the studio with a two-inch multitrack. But they did their string date to the cassette mix on two of the 24 tracks on the multitrack. And... That was how the song existed for a long time. I have to admit that when I heard what they had done against what I had done in the studio with Michael, it all seemed to work. The balance between the piano, the lead vocal, and the harmony vocal, and the way they brought in the strings, it all seemed to work. But I think at that point, a few people realized, well, this isn't going to be the final whatever for whatever purpose this is going to be. I learned much later that uh, Michael had a whole project envisioned, this whole Scared of the Moon-based uh, project. This was one of the songs of many that he wanted to have in it. It did resurface later during history and in the interim a lot of people had recreated the orchestra on synthesizer and there was some talk about recutting the song altogether and it was an interesting process but there was something that was just magical when we just had that piano vocal demo mm. it just had this haunting quality to it in the moment, it just worked so well that uh, everything else got built around it. And uh, that was my part of the story. It's a beautiful song, and I love that description of it. It is so haunting. I'm looking at a, a photograph now of a list that was on the wall of Michael's bedroom that he passed away in. And there's a lot of songs written on the list that Michael wanted to finish. But Scared of the Moon is there in big, bold letters. It says with three arrows pointing down to it, and it says, finish, finish Scared of the Moon. So it's obviously a song he wanted to work on, even right up until those last days. 
Well, interestingly enough, when uh, I met Spike Lee for the Bad 25 project, and we were in the meeting, we had our initial discussions. Karen Langford was there from the estate, and I was there, and Spike was there. And we were just talking about my involvement and, and all the songs I had worked. Spike turned to me and he said, you have to tell me one thing. Did you record Scared of the Moon? And I said, yes, that was my original recording. And Spike just like jumped up and gave me the biggest hug. He goes, that is my favorite song. I love that song. And I was quite shocked and surprised very pleasantly. But it is a great song. It's one of those magical things. And there are those times in the studio when things are just magical. And I don't know if you've heard the background story to, to Scared of the Moon. I don't believe I have, so I'd be interested to hear it. Well, uh, it turns out that was a point in time when Michael was good friends with Brooke Shield. I guess they had dated kind of on and off. Michael explained to me that Brooke Shields had a younger sister. And the younger sister was frightened by the moon. Something about when she would see the moon, I can only imagine, you know, in my mind, picturing that seeing it through a window as a child, some quality, uh, she found it frightening. That inspired Michael to write the song Scared of the Moon because it was actually about a child who was scared of the moon. And there was going to be an entire children's project, as I best understood it, that was going to incorporate a story and many songs. That was the centerpiece of it. I found out kind of much later that at some point Michael envisioned he was going to write other songs that were going to complete this larger project. His attention was always you know, taken up by um, the need to complete an album. So that was one of the many things that Michael never did complete. Uh, not just that one song in its complete, fully realized form, but also the entire nature of whatever the scope of the larger project was going to be. And when you say uh, it was supposed to be a children's project, are we talking about like a storybook in the E.T. vein or a TV thing? Do you know what format it was going to take when it was finished? I think the initial impression I got was similar to like, a, like an E.T. storybook. It was going to be story. It was going to be music. You know, it was going to be classical. Uh, uh, Peter and the Wolf, you know, was a story and, and, and music and presented as a basically for children, a cross between that, an E.T. storybook. There were times when that would be mentioned or that was just one of the many things that Michael wasn't able to complete. At what time did you begin work or realize that you'd begun work on the next album? I'm not sure if I initially realized it at the time, because what we did was we segued from uh, completing Centipede for Reby Jackson, and we segued immediately into the song Dirty Diana. And we were working at Westlake Studio at that time. 
come to find out, Brent Averill was building Michael the Havenhurst studio. And uh, I wasn't fully aware of all of the details of that. Michael was upset that the Havenhurst studio wasn't completed in time because he wanted to immediately jump into the Havenhurst studio and start working on the songs that would be for the bad album. So we just went right into this song that Michael had. Michael just said, oh, this next song I want to do. We worked for a couple of weeks or a few weeks in Westlake Studio A on Dirty Diana, waiting for the Havenhurst studio to be completed because building a studio is not something that you just kind of throw together. Very high level of complexity and the amount of wiring, and all of the equipment and the acoustic treatment and the design consideration. It's like anything else. Sometimes, you know, you project or you desire it to be completed at a certain time, but, you know, expectations can't always be met. When it was completed, we immediately uh, switched and moved to the Havenhurst studio. So Centipede was around 84, I think. So it's kind of interesting to, uh, I think because Michael did take big gaps between albums, you associate the songs with very clearly defined eras and looks. So it's slightly jarring to think of Michael working on Dirty Diana back in 84. So you started that early on what would become the bad project. Approximately. I I would need to look to my notes to tell you the exact date that we, we started that. But yes, it was in, in that. And once again, that was a song that, that had this, this quality of edge to it, kind of like a rock edge. What we did was we completed Centipede, and from Centipede, we segued directly into Captain EO. And then we were doing the writing of the songs with John Barnes for the songs that were to be in Captain EO. And then at the same time, the songs were being written. Michael was working with choreographers, and they were storyboarding how Captain EO was going to be shot. You know, because it was 3D camera and, and high technology on, on that end of things. The Lucas uh, Industrial Light and Magic had been brought in. We had this component. I remember the day Michael walked into the studio and we had finished, I think, Centipede. And it was Michael, myself, and John Barnes. And Michael said, okay, now, this next project we're going to do is going to be really special. And it's going to be for Disney, for the Disney theme parks. And it's going to be shot in this 3D, this new technology 3D. It's going to be directed by Francis Ford Coppola. And George Lucas is involved. And it's going to be all of the Star Wars technology, special effects. And we're going to do a special theater sound system. No one has ever heard this, this kind of theater sound system before. My head was spinning by the time that meeting ended because it was like, oh my gosh, 
three or four of the biggest entities in the entertainment business were converging on this little project that was supposed to be a 14 or 15 minute movie. Michael said, this is going to be all new technology, absolutely something like no one has ever seen before or experienced before. Then we started doing that project. We had to do all the music. John was writing and then finally Michael made the decision on the songs and how they were going to be used and how the different musical pieces were going to be used in, in the, the film. So we had to do all of that work so that they could have all of the correct music so they could go into production and start shooting because they needed to have all of the music constructed exactly as Michael and uh, I forgot who the choreographer was on that. This is like another multiple layer of complexity when you get Michael wanting specific dance moves and you're working with a choreographer and then they make a change. Oh no, we want another section that's got another eight beats because, you know, Michael's going to do this thing where he does a head snap and then an arm swish and then a, a, a leg thrust. And so, okay, then we would have to go back and we would have to modify the music or the number of beats to allow them to give them something that they could shoot against. And when they shot the choreography, the music would fit the choreography so that it would be captured on film. All of this stuff was in constant state of flux. It was very uh, much a, a complicated process because when the Captain EO film came out of editorial and I finally was able to view a cut of the movie, I then had to conform what we had recorded as music to the way the movie and the choreography had been cut in film. They didn't match. <laughs> a lot of technical work to make the music now match the way they had edited the film. But that was later. We went from doing the original portion of the recording of the Captain Neo music, and then we went into Dirty Diana. Now, it was halfway through the Bad Album that I had to leave the Bad Album and Billy Betrell came on board because I had to go into the post-production of the EO movie. Our schedules were staggered and fractured because of um, Michael having these multiple projects going on. In what state did Michael bring Dirty Diana to you? Uh, he had some basic ideas. Him and John Barnes started working out the way he wanted the song to be recorded. It kind of evolved. It continued to be built. We started that at Westlake, and then uh, we later continued it at Havenhurst. When I started it, I didn't realize, oh, this is going to be the next album. To me, it was just, Michael's got another song, we're in the studio, we're doing this. And then at one point he goes, oh no, this is going to be our next album, which is when we moved to Havenhurst. The development uh, continued from there. It was synthesizer-based initially. The guitar was the guitar element was added a little bit later. But I came on board what was to be the bad album, I think 13 months before Bruce and Quincy started working on bad. 
in that first year, that was where Michael was not only did he work on Dirty Diana, but also Smooth Criminal and uh, a lot of those other songs from the Bad Album. And Michael was in an extremely creative phase because he was now creating this new persona, this new sound, this new style of what his songs were going to sound like, what the production of them was going to be, which he extended into creating the image of what he was going to have, that uh, photograph that was the cover of the Bad Album. He morphed or evolved into that as the image uh, to match the sound that was being developed in the studio. Did he ever articulate to you what that vision was for what he was trying to create? So did he ever actually talk to you about, for my next album, I want this style, I want to go down this sonic route? Or was it something that was happening more organically through the creative process? It was more organically through the creative process because with each new song, Each song was its own thing, but he was pushing the envelope into being a less, uh, you know, I'm sure that you're familiar with what's called the MJ Manifesto. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It was a document that Michael wrote Mm -hmm. sometime between Off the Wall and Thriller, where he states how he's basically going to become this new image and have this new quality and you know, it's going to be the best and it's going to be the greatest. and The biggest uh, star on the planet, bigger than any movie star, something like that. Yeah, I know the document you're talking about, yeah. Which to me, when I, that that didn't come out until much later, I think until after Michael had passed, uh, that that was discovered. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, for someone, for anyone, for anyone who has a desire or a dream something they want to accomplish, for them to articulate it in such a fashion and then go back and execute it. It wasn't completely, I think, realized or executed in Thriller. I think Thriller was like the process that gave Michael that confidence that those ideas that he had both in his songs and his style and what he wanted to do and where he wanted the music to go, that gave him that confidence to say, yes, yes, my vision is in fact been validated by the level of success that he reached. And there's no bigger example of that than the thriller video itself. I mean, everything was being taken to not just the next level, but beyond the next level. And Michael wanted the bad album to be yet bigger than thriller better just more newer and fresher give people something that they've never heard before that was always the search forever in the studio with michael he always wanted something new something uh, people hadn't heard before that's why we did a lot of experimenting with uh instruments and sound qualities and sampling and and all kinds of things. Uh, Michael was for always wanting to explore new areas sonically uh, in terms of songwriting and and arrangement. I mean, that was 
such an exciting time to be part of it. At the time, of course, I didn't realize the extent to what it was ultimately going to be again, just as in the thriller. When you're doing that, you have to be in the moment. You have to be present and you have to have clarity and you have to do and search. And that was the thing that between Michael and myself, it was like we had a wavelength thing where the brain waves would synchronize. He'd want something and he'd start describing it to me. And I'd say, oh, you mean like this? And he'd go, yeah, that's it. That's it. Exactly. And then that he'd get so excited when he would hear it, he would start dancing. And he would literally dance. If I was at the recording console between myself and the equipment in the back of the room, he would literally dance back and forth and do the moonwalk and he would dance. When the sound was right, it connected to some inner part of him that made him physically move. That was just like, that's what it has to be. That's what it should be. That was how we operated. And it was fun and it was exciting because there's nothing like that feeling you get when you're you're doing something creatively and it just you hit the mark it would happen incrementally as things would progress michael would continue to have this tremendous thrill and excitement and and energy and that just propelled uh, everything forward for quite some time from the time i first started the bad album until the time the bad album was released Oh, I want to say it was two and a half to three years. You must have been seeing a very different side of Michael's creative process. Back in the Thriller sessions, you were at Westlake, so Michael was bringing in demos. Whereas once you were at Havenhurst, you were part of the process of constructing those songs from scratch. So what did you learn about or observe about Michael's creative process once you got to Havenhurst and started working on the Bad Album? How did it change your understanding of Michael as an artist? Well, you could say it was, it was uh, an examination that went into greater depth. It was the understanding of how Michael had a connection. The first day that I walked into the Havenhurst studio, I walked into the control room and the opposing wall to where the door is that you enter, there was a quote by John Lennon on the wall. And the quote, if I can simplify it and paraphrase it, it was something to the nature of John Lennon was saying, when the great music comes to him, he called it the music of the spheres. John didn't feel that he was responsible for the music, but he was merely a channel through which the music flowed. And I remember walking in the first day and I read that saying on the wall and I just said to myself, oh my God, this is going to be so great. This is going to be so much fun. All of my study of fine arts and creativity and all my work with Michael up to that point and with other artists in the studio, it was like, not only do I totally understand and get this, but this is like making so much sense coming together now. I just knew that we were going to have a great experience working. And it surpassed anything that I would have imagined. 
But that's what I saw. I saw Michael have this connection to that thing. And really, really great creative individuals, the masters, if you want to. Michael would refer to someone as, as a master, kind of like a Michelangelo. I have that quote here. I was at Havenhurst about a month ago where I bumped into you on the uh, way in. So I have a picture in my phone of the inside of the studio. So it says, when the real music comes to me, the music of the spheres, the music that surpasseth understanding, that has nothing to do with me because I'm just a channel. The only joy for me is for it to be given to me and to transcribe it like a medium. Those moments are what I live for. Thank you for, for reading that quote. Because so much is revealed in that quote and the understanding. And when, when you have pursued an understanding of consciousness at the level to which John is speaking, it changes you. It's like having a spiritual awakening when you realize that that's what's happening and that's what you are capable of doing. And uh, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm so affected by the, the fact that you just read that because yes, that's like taking everything you do to another complete another level of of, of creativity of, of of expression of humanity. That's what I came to understand about Michael was that he had that connection. He understood it, and I saw it displayed so many times, just in the way it flowed from him. It's not something that uh, you just practice. Uh, it, it's, it's that next level beyond. You know, it's, it's like if you, if you want to become a good musician, what you have to do is you have to practice, practice, practice. You have to practice to the point that you do not have to devote conscious thought to what chord you're playing, what keys you're pressing on the keyboard, on the fretboard of a guitar. You have to go on instinct. The same way an athlete, a top athlete, when you're the batter and that baseball is coming at you at 100 miles an hour, you don't have time to devote conscious thought to, do I swing? Do I not swing? You have to have this instinctual thing. Developing your instinct is something that you have to devote all your life and your energy to. But what we're talking about here is beyond instinct. It's intuition. The mind's ability to have intuition of, you know, we've all had those moments where someone's, the, the thought of some person pops in your mind. Five seconds later, the telephone rings and it's that person. How did that happen? How did you know in advance? Did your mind know to think about that person and then that person calls you in that moment? You're talking about a level of consciousness of understanding here that is totally of a completely different level. A lot of people don't get it or feel it or understand it, and that's okay. But for those people that do, it's like having like the greatest 
toolkit in the world to be able to rely on when you're doing anything, when you're creating art or when you're a doctor, when you're treating a patient, when you're a, a scientist and you're, you're trying to discover a, a cure or an invention. It's like there's a whole nother level to the universe we live in and a lot of things can't be explained. This falls into something beyond, but Michael and I, uh, we kind of clicked on a, on a wavelength that, that just made it so that, you know, we understood totally when we worked together, where, where things were going. And it was always my desire to pull out of Michael's head, what it was that he heard in his head so that that could be present in the uh, recording. Matt, can you think of a specific song or example from that time period before the sessions moved to Westlake, when it was just you and just John and just Michael in in the Havenhurst studio, where you were really seeing that flow that you're talking about? Is there a specific song where you saw Michael just completely in the zone like never before? There were times, obviously, you could say, yes, that definitely happened. But when you're working with someone on a daily basis and everyone's on the same team, John was very much in sync with Michael, undoubtedly, the way they collaborated in creating the things that Michael was looking to do. There would just be this thing about sometimes when he was working with John, you know, he would have to, John would have to search when Michael would want a chord voiced a certain way, he wanted a certain note in the chord, but he hadn't studied music theory, so he couldn't say something from a, a musical theory standpoint, but he would say, no, that's not quite, it's got to be more, there needs to be an overtone in there, that's a thing. And then John would play chords until, oh, Michael, oh, that's it. Sometimes he would do that with me, where he'd be, that's not, that, that's not quite it, it's, it needs a little more this or at least a little more of that. And sometimes there was the verbal communication and sometimes it would just be like, once the vibe would start to flow, then it would be like, oh yeah, well here, this is going to play off that vibe feeling that we're all having. And then Michael would go, yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the thing. It would just, I did so many sessions of recording Michael's vocals. There were times that he would just flow with these vocal ideas and these harmonies and where things would go. There was a trick that I used to do in the studio when I worked with everybody that I ever worked with, but from the time I first started. And that was when I was first in the starting in the studio, working as an assistant, you got to kind of sit in the corner and the pressure wasn't really on you because the engineer was doing his engineering, much as Bruce would be if I was there. Uh, doing the technical work. And I would always in my mind, when a performer would do something, I would think in my mind, okay, now the next thing they're going to want to do, or where the next element is going to take this, is going to be to this place. Because if you understand music well enough and you've heard enough music, you get to understand the patterns of chord progressions and, and things musically. The thing that was really a remarkable thing was there were other people where I could figure out where things were going to go. I could figure out, oh yeah, the next logical place for the music to go is to this. And oh yeah, the bass is going to go here and do this. But when I worked with Michael, every single element, 
I could never predict. I could never tell. I could never feel. It would always go someplace that was the unexpected place. But when I would hear it, I would go, oh, wow. That's, that's like so much more than I ever would have thought or imagined. Every single time there was like, okay, we're going to do this next thing and this next part is going to be something. And in my mind, I think, oh, it's probably going to, it would always be something original and unique. And that was what Michael had. He had that thing about, he was bringing forth the unexpected. And when you listen to his songs, a lot of the things that happen, when you listen to them and the song is done, it's like, oh yeah, everything fits perfect and it all makes perfect sense. But when you're only hearing the outline frame and you're not hearing all of the internal detail of all of the parts, when you see those parts form and go together and you go like, wow, each one of these things is a totally unique interpretation of where it could potentially go and what it could potentially do in the arrangement both rhythmically and melodically and in all uh, the different uh, aspects of uh, arranging uh, you know songwriting and production and that was the thing about michael's music he could do that every time it's one thing to be able to create something and do that once or twice nearly every single song that michael wrote and every recording had that quality he was endlessly different and fresh which is why the albums all had different characters and different directions and the songs all had different themes musically different ideas different things were being expressed different rhythmic patterns different structures his mind went places that he alone would take things the havenhurst sessions they're so interesting to me in terms of um I think I explained it to you in the John Barnes reflection episode we did where you have producers from later in Michael's career, like Rodney Jerkins, who quite often will say things like, oh, Michael wanted me to create completely new sounds that have never been heard before. So he had me out in junkyards hitting bits of tin and stuff <laughs> that I had to record. And to me, the Havenhurst sessions represent that more than anything else because you guys were like a crack team put together experimenting with new technologies and new sounds that had never been heard before with the synclavia and all of that kind of thing so to me those sessions kind of represent a intersection of artistry and technology coming together in a way that hadn't before that's very true i put together a uh, portable digital recording system that we could go out and, and sample sounds with because the technology hadn't gotten to a point where you could go out into the field and do a field recording digitally, you know, to get that sound quality. That was the thing about Michael is he loved uh, stretching the boundaries. And it was one of the things that, uh, you know, we were kind of kindred spirits in that we both loved uh, exploration and discovery. <laughs> we were, and it was like fun fun for both of us. I, I, there, there was so much that I created over a period of time and it all went into this library of stuff and, you know, other people had access to it and used it. And Oh, I see. So it wasn't necessarily like Michael saying, oh, you know, we're working on Smooth Criminal. I want a unique sound 
at the 22nd mark. It wasn't like that. It was more like go out and record heaps of different things and we'll draw from them later. Was it more like that? Yeah. Yeah. It was more like go out and get some great sounds. So you go out and you would record and then you would come back and you would edit what you had done. I mean, John Barnes did the same thing. He recorded things that, in the same fashion. You'd give Michael a tape of the new sounds, and if there was something on there that he reacted to, he'd say, oh, use this sound for here. There was a time period where we just sat in the studio. I, I worked with Chris Carell, and we just created sounds. I don't know for how long. That was a couple-week period of that's what Michael told us to do. When we finished Bad... I went through the collection of tapes that we had, and I said, now, how many songs during this era of time have I worked on? I counted 60. Wow. Now, six of those were on the Bad Album. And I would have to look at the Bad Album now to, to refresh my memory. I don't have the song list in front of me. There were some of those songs on the Bad Album that I didn't. In fact, the interesting thing was another part of me actually took the tapes from the Captain EO session and Bruce used them. Yeah. He actually used my recordings. Uh, normally, I knew I was just doing demos, and I understood that. But in that case, he actually took my multitracks, and I didn't even know that he had used my multitracks for that song, for the album. Because what I did, I always, to myself, thought like, wow, I had all the fun when Michael was creating these songs and writing these songs. And now Bruce and Quincy are down at Westlake and now they've got to recreate all my demos. Recreating a demo is, is not a fun process. Well, it's interesting you say that because you, you just said something before that interested me. You said you were making demos and you knew that. Yeah. And so... At some point, the recording did shift, like the focus of the recording and the preparation from the, for the Bad Album shifted from Havenhurst over to Westlake. Yes. And I want to know what that was like for you. Was it a thing where it was like, oh, I thought I was going to produce work that would end up on the final product? Or was it a feeling of, you know, my work's going to another team now that's going to redo it? And, you know, what was it like? Uh, when we initially started, because we started Dirty Diana at Westlake, and then we moved to Havenhurst, and then we did Smooth Criminal and a lot of tracks, because I knew uh, this is this is a complicated question to explain. Because when we did Thriller, the team. The team effort on Thriller was such an incredible feeling. Mm -hmm. And when we got to bad, initially I thought, oh, this is going to be like the old gang's going to get back together and we're going to have a good time again. And it, in fact, was very different from that. Uh, because now Michael had his own camp of uh, people working at Havenhurst. And there was a totally separate camp of people that were working at Westlake. Now, I at no time misunderstood my place in the, in the food chain. I knew I was working with Michael and all the recordings I was doing were to help Michael develop what it was he was working on developing and that all of that work would be handed off to Quincy and Bruce. And then what Quincy and Bruce added 
you know, to the final product of, of, of the final sound of everything. I, I, I thought it was great. It was terrific. Uh, they definitely kicked it up another notch. But the two camps were, instead of being the feeling of, oh, we're one big team, became a, a different political vibe of, oh, no, there's, it, it, it evolved into a us against them mentality. And that occurred uh, when I left uh, Havenhurst and Billy Petrell came in and was working with uh, John Barnes. And I had to do the post-production on the music and the mixing uh, for Captain Neo. And when I then returned to the project, I found, oh, the vibe is very different and very weird in my perception. I was with the group of people considered the outcasts. Like I was, oh, I was with those guys. And uh, it struck me uh, so, uh, caught me so by surprise because it wasn't like I was warmly embraced by Bruce and Quincy because uh, while I was gone, Michael, I think, uh, kind of uh, liked to create the atmosphere of competing teams. And I think he kind of encouraged the us against them mentality. Oh, we can do better than they can. And you got, you know, and it's one thing when you set up something. And I know this was something that was uh, an offshoot of uh, the stuff that he learned from Motown and Barry Gordy is, you know, you, you, you set a situation where you get a whole bunch of people writing music and songs. And then Barry says, we're going to pick the very best that we're going to release. And you put your effort behind that. I get that from a business standpoint. From a creative standpoint, that's a little bit different when you're in the middle of it. Mm. Yes, your feelings can be hurt if like, oh, I'm not doing the best work. Well, that means next time I've, I've got to do even better. But it was just kind of like it created this animosity because it got back to the people at Westlake that the guys at the Havenhurst studio were talking a lot of smack about Bruce <laughs> Quincy. Now, it wasn't me yeah. because I, I loved those guys. And I didn't in any way see myself in competition. But nonetheless, that was what it had evolved into. Uh, so I came back to a situation where mm, the vibe is a little bit weird. And uh, it's not like... Uh, there were a couple of times when Michael had me come down to Westlake because there was some character of some sound that I had done on a demo. And Michael was saying, well, that's not exactly the way uh, Matt had it sound. You know, for Michael to say that to Quincy and Bruce, they're going like, well, well what do you mean? You don't like the way it sounds? Well, then, okay, we'll get Matt down here and he'll make it sound that way. So there were a couple times when I had to go down there and I had to think, oh, oh my goodness, now I'm hearing it out of a different set of speakers, but I've got to dial in that thing that gave it that quality that Michael liked. And that was a tricky, difficult position to be put in. Yeah. I didn't want to be put in that position, but of course I did my best. 
and I only wanted the best for the album project as a whole. That was what we had experienced on Thriller. And that was the point that I realized, wow, this whole bad thing is, is a very different animal than the last time we were working on Thriller. And there was this tremendous camaraderie in, in the teamwork. It was really a different thing. And that created some of, I think, what created some of those songs on Bad was really that competitive edge. The song Bad itself and the song uh, I Just Can't Stop Loving You, I think they came out of that competitive attitude process between the two studios because I wasn't involved in those. And I think those are great songs. So I'm in, I'm in no way, um, you know, dissing the whole thing. It just was like, wow, this is like going from Earth to now I'm on Mars. Now I'm on a different planet and it's a whole different environment. And I've got to figure out now, because it got to a point by the time that I came back to the Bad Album, the songs that I had worked on had already been recreated at Westlake with uh, Bruce and Quincy and whatever musicians it was that Quincy was having uh, there on the dates. And uh, they had a synclavier there, so a lot of the synclavier work could be taken, the synclavier being the digital, not only synthesizer system, but a recording system. So they could take that information and take it from one synclavier and put it into the other synclavier. And then it was exactly what Michael had heard that was created at the Havenhurst studio. But that was a whole nother technical ball game that created a whole bunch of technical headaches for what they had to do from a technical standpoint. That's why I think I mentioned it was unbeknownst to me that they had taken my multi-tracks for another part of me. I was surprised later when I realized, oh no, that was actually my recording. <laughs> because it was my assumption that like all the other songs, they would have re-recorded those things and they made them sound so good. They made them sound like the original. Yeah. But it was a good feeling then to know, oh, I felt gratitude that, yes, my tracks did make it on that. And I used to get feedback from people who went on the bad tour and they said, that song was one of the high points of the show. Yeah. I can only think back to the fact that uh, uh, when we were working in Westlake and we were creating those songs, I had a conversation with the woman who was the studio manager, the booking manager. This was many years later. And she said, you know, when I used to walk down the hallway and that the doorway would open or it would be open and I'd see you guys working in there. You and John and Michael, you, you guys were in there having fun. You were really, it's like, I know you were working, but you guys were having a lot of fun in there when you worked. <laughs> And I said to her, yes, exactly. When you have that feeling of fun and enjoyment, when you're doing the creation of the music, that's what the listener feels when they hear it. It's not magic. It's a very simple process. If you're having fun when you write a song and fun when you're recording the song, then People are going to feel that joy and that happiness. And that's going to be the vibe that people get when they hear it. 
so I said, yeah, that's exactly right. That's the, that's, that's what you try to accomplish. It is usually very difficult to accomplish that in the studio. Quincy was good at doing that. He was excellent at doing that on a Quincy album, what he did on a Thriller album. That was embodied in all of that. To have someone point that out to me uh, well, kind of like made me smile and laugh. I don't think there's many Michael fans that wouldn't agree, I think, with the fact that the stuff that was coming out of Havenhurst, whether it be on Off the Wall, whether it be on Thriller, whether it be on Bad, well, for me at least, the songs that originated from the work you were doing with John and Michael, there's just this character and soul and organic fun that that's still there even when you're listening to the version that ended up on the bad album you can still feel that whether it's the way you make me feel or smooth criminal or any of those songs that originated from those homegrown sessions at the very least they're the ones that i gravitate towards the most because you can feel michael the most i think in those yeah leave me alone yeah thank you but what's interesting is we we, we still haven't really heard many of we, we haven't really heard the Havenhurst versions of those songs. They are still gems that are unheard in the community. We haven't heard Smooth Criminal before it got on the Bad Album. We haven't heard The Way You Make Me Feel before it got on the Bad Album. Well, I would say uh, to the casual listener, they probably don't sound very much different mm-hmm. with the exception of they're going to be a little bit raw in a sense that they haven't been polished to that level. Quincy and Michael both would want a final release to be taken to because that was the thing about Michael. was If Michael knew he was singing a guide track or he was singing and it was going to be a demo, he was a little bit more casual yeah. and the rawness would seep through. But when he knew a track was going to be finished master and that was going to be on the album or the record the perfectionist in him came out and he would work tirelessly to make sure it was perfect now the interesting thing about perfection versus non-perfection is all of the emotion is contained in the small imperfections the way the voice bends the way the articulation, the best example of that is, you know, the way Michael at the end of the song, uh, and, and I didn't work on this, she's out of my life. You know, when you hear Michael at the very end of that song and you can hear the emotion in his voice, oh my God, there's anything that matches that. That's, that's, that, that, that contains that thing. You know, when his voice breaks at the end, I remember uh, Quincy telling the story about, you know, uh, he sang it and then his voice, he, he kind of broke up at the end and, and then he apologized to Quincy and Quincy was going like, no, no, that's okay, Michael, that's, that's fine, you know, and, and we'll do it again. And every time he got to that point in the song, he would reach that same emotional state and Quincy said, wow, you know. If this song is affecting Michael this way, then we, we cannot deny that and we cannot perfect it to the point of uh, sanitizing it and, and taking that rawness out of it because that's, that, 
that's a part of the performance. Uh, that's the thing about, uh, that's why people feel it emotionally. And yes, you are right. Those tracks as they were completed and submitted to the other team for the bad album, know that those tracks, yes, they haven't been heard, but from my own viewpoint, I haven't heard them in a very long time myself. And I can only say they're just a little bit more raw, maybe to the diehard Michael fan that knows, you know, every nuance about Michael and, and how he performs and sings. They might reveal something to someone with a critical ear. That just goes to show that the magic was there well before it got to uh, Westlake. Mm-hmm. Now, on the note of um, Quincy and Michael's relationship, I've always found it very hard to characterize it. There's very little footage of them together. I don't think there's any interviews of them together. Uh, there might be one or so, but it's difficult to read the relationship from the outside. But what we can see from the track lists on the albums is off the wall, there's a couple of Michael songs. Thriller, there's some more. Bad's nearly all Michael written. That level of input or control that Michael Jackson himself was eventually able to have, did he have to wrestle that control away from Quincy, would you say? No. Uh, I think that is something that Quincy encouraged. Quincy always encouraged Michael to be his own person, to create his own sound, his own style in his songwriting. I saw that uh, numerous times in the Thriller Project when we were all together. Definitely encouraging of Michael. The interesting thing about Michael on Thriller was Michael wasn't really there except when one of his songs was being worked on. Or he had to come in to sing a vocal. The rest of the time, if the song was someone else's song, like uh, Picaro's song or the uh, the PYT or the Rod Temperton songs, Michael wouldn't be there for the process. That would be Quincy. Quincy would always be very sensitive to if Michael felt something, he would want to know what that was and he'd want to make use of the fact that if Michael was feeling something or felt like he wanted to interpret something a certain way, yes, he would absolutely encourage Michael. We go to bad, like you said, the development of the number of songs that were Michael's on each album grew. Michael was more becoming his own uh, his own person. I can only say that he was becoming more competitive with Quincy in the decision-making pushing for things. I wasn't at bad for the process, so I cannot comment personally about anything that happened. The one thing that I remember hearing was the uh, point at which they had to make a decision between two songs for inclusion on the Bad album. Uh, One of them was Another Part of Me, and the other one was Streetwalker. The way that story was relayed to me was kind of like, well, Michael was thinking that maybe, you know, Streetwalker was more in keeping. And I think Quincy was a little bit leaning towards uh, another part of me because you have to realize you didn't want to create too many songs that were cast in the same style or sound or, or character. 
another part of me was yet different, whereas Streetwalker was very much in that kind of intense, edgy, aggressive vibe that, that many of the songs from Bad were. I've heard the story told by a couple different people. I think Frank DeLeo was in the room. There were all these little subtle signs that, that Frank was, was dropping uh, that he liked uh, another part of me better uh, while they were listening to the two. I think, honestly, the correct choice was made for what the uh, bad album needed. It's like when both people want the same objective. Both people want the very best thing to be what it could possibly be. But one person thinks, you know, if we do it this way here, or the other person say, yeah, but if we do it this way here, uh, it's like you probably want to stand up for what you think is best. I have had the same discussion with uh, songwriters and uh, producers and musicians. You know, it's kind of like, look, you can take what I feel and agree. You can disagree. Uh, I'm not a big uh, ego guy in terms of it's my way or the highway. It's who's the person who's going to come down to uh, the final decision. Uh, there was a little saying that Bruce uh, had in the studio. He said, uh, the making of a record is not a democracy. He was specifically speaking to when he had to work with bands. And, you know, everybody in the band wanted an equal voice. Well, that just doesn't work in the studio. There has to be a captain. There has to be a leader steering the ship. It's kind of like sometimes a heavy weight that rests on your shoulders when you're the person that has to make that final call because what, what happens if, uh, you know, you, you don't make the right call? It's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. And, and that's where I think the disagreements, the difference in views, that started at some point and it kind of grew over a period of time towards the latter half of uh, the time at Westlake on the Bad Album. You mentioned that at the end of the Bad project, you counted up how many songs you'd worked on. 60. Yes of which six ended up on the album. Of those 60, how many of them, for example, would have had a Michael vocal attached to them? So are the, uh, would some of those songs just be like grooves that never got worked on to completion? Or are you talking about essentially 60 demos of 60 different songs with a Michael vocal on them? Well, let me qualify it this way. There were 60 songs that we had worked on in that period of time some of the songs knew were not in any way related to being considered for the bad project you know a song like scared of the moon i just knew that wasn't going to you know be in contention to, to be on the album uh, we did a couple of those just very light style songs that potentially, I was thinking much later, uh, they could have been songs that he was thinking of for that Scared of the Moon project. So there was a certain number of songs that were in, in a category other than these were songs specifically written or started with the intention of being on the Bad Album. 
of those songs, there were a lot of songs. They were all in different degrees of completion. Some of them just had uh, a drum groove, maybe a drum groove and a bass. Maybe there'd be some chords. Maybe there'd be some with some uh, fleshed out with synthesizers. Generally, there'd be a hook vocal if there was going to be a vocal, chorus vocal. But there were so many and they were all in varying degrees. Because what would happen is a song would be started. We'd work on a song for whatever amount of time. It was uh, Michael had time available. And then as it got further along, if Michael saw potential in it, then his intention would be to complete it. It would be completed. If something came along that was a stronger song, then it would be just abandoned at whatever point that was and not revisited. There was at one point, as I'm sure you're aware, the discussion of making Bad a triple vinyl release because there were so many potential songs. Not that they all were completed, but if all of the potential songs were completed, yeah, it, it could easily have been a triple vinyl. But I know the record company was of the mind that that's going to be so expensive. You know, that's going to be something in the marketplace that's going to be out of the range for a lot of people to go out and buy the new Michael Jackson thing if it's three vinyl discs because that would probably make it a double CD. So they wanted to keep it to a single vinyl disc. I think Bad being one of the largest selling CDs from the era where the CD was starting to dominate the physical sales market, but vinyl was still holding its own. Vinyl wasn't out of the picture yet, so they had to make sure that the vinyl version of the album was basically complete in concept. So what they did was they put one bonus song on the CD, which was Leave Me Alone, which <laughs> uh, turned out to be uh, a really popular song with a great uh, music video. There was a project that Michael worked on with Roger Troutman around that time called Tomboy. Do you know anything about that? Well, Tomboy was originated by Michael. And Roger Troutman just showed up at the studio one day. Got along really good with him. Oh, gosh. Ah, uh, what a great guy and a great musician. And he came in and Michael had him play a few things. And then there was a, some kind of a song idea groove that they worked on a little bit together. I think Roger was there for, I want to say, maybe a week, maybe a little bit longer. I remember the first day he said to me, oh, man, I think my guitar needs new strings. I said, come on, I'll, I'll drive down to the music store. We'll buy some strings, which was, which was a fun experience driving to Guitar Center, which is a music instrument store here, and, you know, having Roger Troutman uh, in, in, in the store. And there was a dad there who was, who was buying a guitar for his young son, and he was saying, is this a very good guitar? And he was asking Roger, and we were just standing there, and so Roger said, Roger said, picked up, and he started just doodling on it and playing. He goes, yeah, this is, this is a pretty good one to start with. 
And of course, <laughs> Roger Troughton picking up and playing a guitar. I mean, that's like Eddie Van Halen sitting there picking up a guitar. Nobody else in the world <laughs> that, that you casually bump into is going to have that kind of musical ability. One of the salesmen came over and said, whoa, you, you know your stuff. He didn't know who Roger was. We were just playing it low-key. We got a good laugh about that on the drive back to the studio. They worked on one song idea together, and then Roger had to leave for whatever purpose. Uh, he was there for just a certain amount of time. Michael had kind of decided that, no, nah, that song is going to go beyond the bad album. So he, uh, uh, he gave the song to Roger. And uh, I, I don't know what the name of the song was, but Roger ended up using that song as a track uh, on one of his albums. What about Rod Temperton? Because there is a kind of a demo track that's in circulation called Groove of Midnight, which is from around that period. So do you remember Rod being attached to the project at any point? Uh, I remember when Bruce and Quincy first started at Westlife, Quincy knew that Rod had a song. So Rod came in and they worked up the track. Then I know Michael came in and I believe Michael sang at least a guide vocal on the song. I don't know if he did backgrounds or not, or whether he even fully executed whatever the song required vocally. My conversation with uh, Rod after the fact was Michael just didn't express very much interest in working with Rod and with songs from Rod. Uh, he wasn't like interested in hearing what he had written in terms of, you know, oh, what have you got? Uh, I'd love to hear what you what you did. He just said it was just it was apparent to him that that Michael had, uh, I guess, made the decision that, uh, you know, Rod wasn't going to be a contributor to the bad album. That could have been kind of a, an underlying thing that uh, Quincy had encouraged Michael to such a point that Michael was taking the uh, advice very much to heart and not giving Rod the chance to explore that as a possibility i i don't know when you reflect on the bad album is there a particular track that stands out to you as having been the one that you were most impressed by or the one that was the most fun to work on i have a, a track that uh as opposed to being the most fun to work on, I have the opposite reaction to. And that was Smooth Criminal. And the reason why I say that is because I heard Smooth Criminal every day for I don't know how many months. And Michael wanted this really hard, aggressive sound. And he loved listening loud. And it got to the point where I had listened to that song so many times, <laughs> it, it had worn me out. And, and I didn't want to hear it. For a year after the Bad Album was released, I never listened to that song. It's something about it, the sound of it constantly 
and Michael was being the perfectionist that he was, and I was trying to accommodate whatever it was he was reaching for. After that year went by, all of a sudden I, I, I went back and listened to it. I go, wow, this song is a whole new, I didn't see it at the time because the stress or the demands of the work were so uh, intense. But I go back and I listen to that now, and it's like, oh my God, is that song ever a tour de force of musicality in the songwriting, in the performance? And I've heard that song covered several different ways, and it's just a great song. I had to stand away from it for a little while before I could really hear it and listen and appreciate it for what it really was. You worked on that album for all of those years. It sounds like starting from 84. It was released in 87, became this huge juggernaut of a success. I think in Britain, it was something like one in eight households in the country owned a copy of the Bad Album. It was a huge, huge success. So what did you make of Bad as a phenomenon once it was out of your control and in the world? Uh, I thought the album was incredible. I thought it was a sonic yardstick by which other recordings and releases would be and have been measured. And I have been told that by many people uh, in the industry. Uh, what Bruce did, my work, I want to say whatever, I, you know, I got to have fun working, working with Michael, creating the stuff. But what Bruce created sonically and what Quincy did in his production, I think, totally remarkable uh, result. Uh, that album uh, stands up today. And if someone is fortunate enough to have the original release with the original mastering, the dynamics in that original are just phenomenal when you get a really big, high-quality playback system. That album, oh my goodness, it, it, it takes your breath away. The reissues of it, the style of uh, sound changed over the years, and the dynamics got reduced for the sake of making the record overall uh, higher in level. But uh, it became something that I couldn't have imagined. I uh, did not know what image Michael was going to go for. I just knew the music, and when the whole thing hit with Bad, the uh, Scorsese uh, music video, uh, short film, it was like, oh my goodness, this is a whole new level of accomplishment. And so very proud to be part of it and have shared all of those experiences and all that time with Michael in the studio. And I know uh, to this day, uh, I think the Bad Tour is right up there in the top couple of the world tours, you know, in, in, in every... Uh, category. It's, uh, uh, I, I was uh, very happy, very pleased, very, very privileged and honored to be part of it. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you so much, Matt. We're going to break here and we're going to come back for a part two 
episode with Matt Forger. So listeners, stay tuned because we're going to cover the dangerous history, blood on the dance floor eras. And we've got lots and lots of questions about those for Matt. Matt, I just want to say a really deep thank you from both myself, from Charlie, from the MJ cast, from all of our listeners, the level of depth you are going into with these answers, the way you're able to talk about Michael as a creative human being is just phenomenal. And I feel so lucky we get to talk to you. Well, thank you so much. You know, I tell everybody, Michael was a uh, huge uh, success commercially. He was a, a phenomenal entertainer. But when I look back, what's foremost in my mind is that Michael was my friend and the friendship that we shared was uh, beyond any any words I could use to describe it. When I speak of him in, in a certain way, it's because of that friendship. It's something that has meant a, a such a tremendous uh, amount to me in my life. All right. I think that's the perfect spot, the perfect note right there that we'll cut to part two. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you so much, Matt. I bumped into you at Havenhurst a couple of weeks ago, just as I was walking in and said hi to you and then didn't see you again all night. So I was, uh, I was, <laughs> I was looking for you, but I couldn't find you. But it's a pleasure to speak to you today. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure being here. And uh, I'm sorry that I didn't see you uh, that other time when we were all mingling through the crowd. <laughs> I saw you across the garden a few times, but I, I never managed to actually cross paths with you, with you again. But um, what a pleasure to spend three and a half hours with you tonight. It's, uh, it's just been fascinating. Bye. Thank you. In recent years, have you ever been back into the studio at Havenhurst that you recorded in with Michael so many years ago? I was there for the Bad 25, the Spike uh, Lee documentary. And I believe that was the last time I had seen that studio until Thriller Night at Havenhurst. What's it like stepping back into that space? When I was there for the Bad 25 shoot, I mean, that was, uh, I actually got to some quiet time alone in the room. And it was just incredible to be in that space. And a lot of memories came back. Uh, they flooded back. And most recently at the uh, Thriller Night when I was there, of course, they had a plexiglass shield at the door uh, so that no one could actually walk in too. But what absolutely, when you, someone uses the expression, yeah, man, it blew my mind. I got to tell you, walking up, looking through the plexiglass screen into the control room, in there on a tripod was a blow up picture of myself sitting at the very console with Michael and the picture was right next to the console that we were sitting at and I did not expect to see that because that was my Polaroid that I had given to Spike Lee for Bad 25 documentary. So when I saw when I saw my own Polaroid blown up with Michael and myself sitting there and we were both smiling and 
having fun. It was surrealistic. Oh, let me put it that way. It, it didn't seem real for a moment. Wow. That's what I'm reading the uh, the quote from, the picture that I took through the plexiglass of the studio with your photo blown up on the uh, on the easel. Yeah. Did we get a picture together that night? No, oh. I, I saw you walking up the red carpet right at the beginning and said hi to you and then lost you for the rest of the night. So, oh, okay. You know. <laughs> I was going to say, if, you, if, 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 so, if someone had grabbed a photo of us, I, 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 I'd uh, love to have a copy. But since that doesn't exist, that will have to happen sometime in the future. All right, I'll hold you to that. <laughs> okay. Did you take a picture of your picture in the studio? Because I could, I could get my copy of that over to you. Yes, I did. Okay. It, it was just, it was just a, such a moment. As we wandered the grounds that night, we walked into where the buffet of the uh, food was uh, served. I was walking through the room, and somebody who I was had been speaking to earlier said, "Oh, I want to get you uh, standing next to this picture." And I didn't know what they were referring to, and it was another copy of that same picture. And suddenly, the people who were in line were starting to, one by one, come over to me and they were saying, is that you in that picture? Can I get my picture with you standing next to you next to the picture? Inception. And all of a sudden, about a dozen people formed this line for pictures, which I was glad to do. But it was, it was a uh, memorable uh, event. It made me laugh. <laughs>